Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. Pastor, what if my mate is guilty of adultery with somebody else? Should I get a divorce? Is that grounds for divorce? Well, that's why Jesus followed his teaching on sexual immorality with a radical call to marital fidelity. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. Remember when you were young and learning about moral purity? The prevailing question from young couples seemed to revolve around boundaries. How far is too far? Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress identifies helpful guidelines on physical intimacy in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Now here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. Most people are pleasantly surprised to learn that the Bible provides practical help on some of the most sensitive and intimate aspects of our lives. For example, God created man and woman with a biological and emotional drive for connection. And within the context of marriage, it's one of the most fulfilling expressions of our love for one another. Well, on today's program, I'm going to show you what Jesus said on this topic during his most popular sermon. This message is part of my series called 18 Minutes with Jesus. Now, later in the program, David and I will describe a best-selling book by the same title I've written for you. It parallels our May teaching series on Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. My book is called 18 Minutes with Jesus. The subtitle is Straight Talk from the Savior about the things that matter most. I'm confident that this book will be the most important book you read this year, and not because it's my words, but it's based on the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And a copy of 18 Minutes with Jesus is yours when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory. Please be prepared to jot down our contact information to request my book and the other helpful resources that come along with it, including a complete study guide and even CD and DVD recordings for each session. This can make a great group Bible study in your small group study or your Sunday school class. More details are coming later, but right now, let's begin the next message in our series. It's one of the most surprising topics that Jesus addressed in the Sermon on the Mount. I titled today's message, Straight Talk About Your Sex Life. I'm not a gardener, but I understand that to be successful at gardening, you can't be friendly toward weeds. If you're going to be a successful gardener, instead, you have to declare war on weeds. And that's why the late Swedish diplomat, Dag Hammarskjöld, wrote, He who wants to keep his garden tidy does not reserve a plot for weeds. Now, Hammarskjöld wasn't talking about gardening. He was talking about our moral life. He went on to write, You cannot play with the animal in you without becoming holy animal. You cannot play with falsehood without forfeiting your right to truth. You cannot play with cruelty without losing your sensitivity of mind. And he could have added, you can't play with sexual immorality without losing your marriage. 
That's the theme of the passage we're going to look at today. It's very easy to neglect weeds that grow up in our marriage, but no weed is more destructive than the weed of sexual immorality. Nothing robs us of what God plans for our marriage more than adultery. And that's why Jesus addresses the topic head on in the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our series on this greatest of all sermons. We're calling it 18 Minutes with Jesus. And you know, if I were going to summarize the theme of the Sermon on the Mount in two words, it would be this. The Sermon on the Mount is about radical righteousness. Radical righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount is not a list of requirements, what you have to do to hopefully get into heaven. This isn't about how to get saved. We can't be righteous enough on our own to earn salvation. That's a gift. That's judicial righteousness that God gives us when we trust in Christ. But the Sermon on the Mount tells us how to live after we're Christians. We have a brand new power. We have a new heart. We can experience a whole new realm of living. The problem with the Pharisees in the uh, New Testament times was they set the bar too low. They thought as long as you abstain from certain behavior, you were righteous enough to get into heaven. But Jesus said, if you want to experience the kingdom of heaven right now, the benefits of submitting to God's rule in your life right now, here's the way to do it. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. Let me go back to my weed analogy for just a moment. When I was growing up, my responsibility around our house was mowing the lawn. And when I would mow the lawn, every now and then I would come into a patch of weeds. The easy way to deal with those weeds was just to run the lawnmower over them. You know, that would get rid of the weeds, right? (laughs) No, my dad showed me quite forcefully one time how to deal with weeds. You don't just run your mower over them. You have to reach down and pull them out by the root. You have to pull out that part of the weed you don't see, but is the cause of what you do see. Now, this is what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. The Pharisees felt like just as long as they cut off or cut out certain behavior, they were okay. But Jesus said, no, you've got to deal with the root, not just the fruit of sin. And that's why in Matthew 5.20, he said, for I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't mean you just don't go to heaven when you die. You don't experience the kingdom of heaven now, the kingdom rule of Christ, when you just deal with the external. And we saw last time how Jesus applied that to our relationships. He said in verse 21, Jesus said, you've heard that the ancients were told He's talking about the Old Testament. You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. In other words, the Old Testament standard for good relationships was this. Don't kill another person. As long as you don't knock them off, you're okay. (laughs) Jesus said, no, it goes further than that. You have to go to the root cause of murder. He said in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Jesus talks about how murder is the end result of things in the heart, anger, devaluation, defaming of another human being. Now, when we get to the subject of immorality, Jesus raises the bar again. And that's what we're going to look at today. First of all, notice how in verse 27, Jesus condemns adultery 
in the bed. He uses this, the same formula he did when discussing murder. He said in verse 27, now you've heard it was said, you've read in the Old Testament, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus was not disputing that. He was saying the ancients were right. You're not supposed to commit adultery. Adultery, technically, is a married person having sex with somebody who is not their mate. And there was a severe punishment for that in the Old Testament. Le Leviticus 20 verse 10 said, if somebody were caught in the act of adultery, they were to be stoned to death. That's why I remember in John 8, the woman caught in adultery, they were going to stone her, the religious leaders. That was because the Old Testament prescribed that. Jesus did not negate the Old Testament law but he raised the bar about what sexual immorality and sexual purity were really all about. You see, the Pharisees thought, well, just as long as I don't commit an actual act of adultery, I'm okay, right? Wrong, wrong. When I was youth minister here 40 plus years ago, I remember one summer at our youth camp at Mount Lebanon, I shared with the teenagers four rules for dating. Four rules that will prevent you from sexual immorality. You know what they are? Number one, when you're on a date, don't pull up. Number two, don't pull down. Number three, don't unbutton. And number four, don't unzip. Now, I have teenagers that were there 40 years ago who are now parents in our church, and they tell me, Pastor, we've never forgotten those four rules, and we've taught them to our kids as well. And they're good rules. Don't pull up, don't pull down, don't unbutton, don't unzip. If you will not do those things, you are not going to have an actual sexual act of intercourse. But does that make you sexually pure? No, no. That's what Jesus said. Okay, you don't commit adultery actually, that's great. We ought to condemn adultery in the bed. But notice Jesus goes a step further. He condemns adultery in the head. That's where it all begins. Notice what he said here. He said, I say to you, verse 28, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, before we look at what that means, not to lust after another person, let me clarify two things Jesus is not condemning. First of all, Jesus, by saying this, was not condemning sex within marriage. You can lust all you want to after another person as long as that other person is your mate. <laughs> it's fine. That's normal. That's God's plan. He was not condemning sex within marriage. You say, well, that's kind of a non-starter, isn't it? Who would think Jesus was condemning sex in, in, in marriage? Did you know there are Christians today, just like there are then, who think sex is dirty or there's something unholy about it? Paul addressed that topic in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Some of these Corinthian Christians had come out of a very sexually immoral background, and now that they were converted to Christ... Uh, one person in the marriage thought, well, maybe we ought to just abstain from sex so that we can be more holy. And the other mate said, I'm not interested in holy, I'm interested in being happy. And so they would have an argument over whether they were going to have sex or not. Paul hit that issue head on in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3. He said, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife 
and likewise the wife to her husband. That word fulfill their duty is a word that's used in the New Testament for paying taxes. I won't go there, but that's what it's talking about. There is an obligation that you have towards your mate, and your mate has toward you. Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. People stop there and say, there it is. The Bible's misogynistic. It hates women. They're inferior. They stop too short. It's true. The wife doesn't have authority over her body. The husband does, but the converse is true as well. The husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. Stop robbing one another of what God has designed for you, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. If both of you agree to abstain from sex for a short period of time, that's okay, but it has to be short because if you abstain too long, you'll be tempted by Satan. Jesus was not condemning sex within marriage. Secondly, Jesus wasn't condemning appreciation of God's creation. He wasn't saying it's a sin to admire somebody's beauty. That's permissible. That's natural. It's not that first look he's condemning. It's that second look, that gaze that leads to a mental undressing of the other person and an imaginary sexual exploit with that person. That's what he means by don't lust. The point of verse 28 is very simple. Whatever is immoral in the bed is immoral in your head as well. It's not just not doing it overtly that Jesus is saying ought to be the standard. We should not think about it either. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Well, that brings up an interesting question. Pastor, what if my mate is guilty of adultery in the bed with somebody else? Or what if they haven't done that yet, but they're certainly guilty of adultery in the head? They've got a porn addiction. They're continually lusting after other people. Should I get a divorce? Is that grounds for divorce? Well, that's why Jesus followed his teaching on sexual immorality with a radical call to marital fidelity. It's not just purity we seek in our moral life, but it's fidelity in our marriage. Look at how he addresses this issue head on in verses 31 to 32. Again, using that same formula, you've heard it said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. We'll look at what that means in a moment. But that was the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 24. But I say to you, here's the higher standard, that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I want to point out a couple of things about this verse before we get into what it's actually saying. First of all, there is nothing more distressing than an unhappy marriage relationship. David Brooks, the opinion writer for the New York Times, writes, there is no loneliness so lonely as the loneliness you feel when you are lying there loveless in bed with another. People go into marriages imagining they are going to sail the open seas together, 
But when you're in a bad marriage, you are trapped in an enclosed basin. Some of you listening right now can relate to that. Some of you have gotten out of what you thought was a loveless marriage, an unfulfilling marriage. My purpose in this message is not to condemn you or to pile a load of guilt upon you. If you've divorced for other than the two biblical reasons we're going to look at in a moment, God's word to you is you can be forgiven and be the best husband or wife you can possibly be from this point on. But for those of you who have not divorced yet, even if you're in a lonely marriage, listen to what God's word says. God's will for your life is not to be miserable. He designed marriage. He knows how it works best. And we're looking at what Jesus says we should do in our marriage, even when it's an unhappy marriage. So, first of all, we understand what you may be going through right now. And the second thing I would say was, what we're looking at in Matthew 5, 31 and 32 doesn't represent the whole of what Jesus taught about marriage. In fact, to get a fuller explanation of what Jesus taught about marriage, hold your place here and turn to Matthew chapter 19. Now, to understand what Jesus is teaching, you have to understand the background of what was going on in Judaism at this time. In Judaism, there was a controversy swirling about divorce and remarriage, and it was all centered around Deuteronomy 24. What is the right interpretation of that passage? In that passage, Moses wrote, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from her, his house, and she goes and marries another man, and he too gives her a certificate of divorce for an indecency, or he dies, then she is not to go back to her former husband, for she has been defiled. Now, what in the world does that mean? There were two different interpretations of that verse. One was led by a rabbi named Shammai. He was very conservative, and he believed that the Old Testament taught no divorce for any reason whatsoever. You've got people who believe that today. No divorce for any reason whatsoever. That was the teaching of Shammai. There was another rabbi, a more progressive rabbi named Hillel. And Hillel said, you can divorce for any reason whatsoever. In fact, those who were part of the school of uh, Hillel came up with a list of reasons that divorce was permissible in. For example, if the wife spoiled her husband's dinner with too much salt, that's an indecency, and you can get rid of her. If she appeared in public with her hair down or her head was uncovered, that's grounds for divorce. If she talked with a non-relative male in public, get rid of her. If she spoke disrespectfully to her husband's parents, that was guilty and was worthy of divorce. There is one rabbi who actually said that a husband could divorce his wife if he found a more attractive woman that he wanted to marry. Now, that seems unbelievable, but that's what some of the Pharisees believed. So here you've got the religious community divided right down the middle on this. Divorce for no reason or divorce for any reason. That explains why in verse 3 of Matthew 19, the Pharisees came to Jesus testing him. 
saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Jesus, you've got to make a decision. Do you follow Hillel or Shammai? Who's right? Whichever answer he gave, he would have 50% of the people against him. They were trying to trap him. Jesus was smart. (laughs) He knew how to handle the question. And I want you to notice in his answer three contrasts between himself and the Pharisees. First of all, the Pharisees focused on divorce, but Jesus focused on marriage. Look at verse 4. And he answered and said, have you not read? You're supposed to be the experts in the Old Testament law. Let's go back to the Old Testament and see what it really says. Let's go back to the beginning of God's plan for marriage. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He was quoting from Genesis 1:27. He said, marriage begins with an understanding that God made people male and female. I can't pass this up. It'd be, Doug, I shouldn't pass it up, should I? No, no. That's a clear word for us today. Ladies and gentlemen, gender is not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of chromosomes. God is the one who makes us male and female. But that was so basic, that's really not what Jesus is talking about. Obviously, he made people male and female. The point here is both of those words are singular. It's not males and females. He created one man and one woman. Adam and Eve. There were no spares in the Garden of Eden. If Adam couldn't work it out with Eve, he could spend the rest of his life with a hippopotamus, but that was the only choice that he had. (laughs) They either got along or they had to live separately. God made them male and female. Then he goes on and says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quotation of Genesis 2, 24. And Jesus adds, so when people are married and God joins them together, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God is the one who joins people together in marriage, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually. They are two. They are joined together. That Greek word kaleo is a word that refers to a strong adhesion between two people. And that's why Jesus said what God has joined together, what God has stuck together with a gorilla glue kind of adhesive, God has joined you together. And because he has done that, no man should separate what God has joined together. There's much more in this teaching series from Jesus about the most intimate relationship in life. And in a moment, David will explain how you can receive the audio CDs and the video DVDs in the event you want to share this teaching series with your friends, family members, or your small group Bible study. But first, I want to make sure that you're among those who receive my best-selling hardcover book called 18 Minutes with Jesus. I wrote this in-depth book on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount while I was preparing this sermon series, and I truly believe the Bible teaching in this book, when applied, will accelerate your relationships with God and others. You see, Jesus cared about our friendships. 
He cared about healthy marriages. He cares about the most personal issues of our lives. And my book, 18 Minutes with Jesus, will help you discover the masterful wisdom of Jesus. When you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory, be sure to specifically mention that you'd like to receive a copy of 18 Minutes with Jesus. As a bonus, I'll also send you the Companion Study Guide, which is designed to be utilized in your personal study or in a group setting as well. Now, this is a limited time offer. If you've been meaning to get in touch with us to request these materials, now's the time to reach out. And let me underscore my profound thanks for whatever generous gift you choose to give. Some have limited resources. Others are blessed with abundance. It's not the size of your gift that matters. What's important is that you respond, because together we're pushing back the forces of darkness in order to bring light and life to all who hear. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. Today, when you give a generous gift of Pathway to Victory, you're invited to request a copy of the best-selling book from Dr. Jeffress called 18 Minutes with Jesus, along with the companion study guide. Here's our toll-free phone number, 866-999-2965, or visit us online at ptv.org. And when you give an especially generous gift of $75 or more, we'll also include the complete 18 Minutes with Jesus teaching series on audio and video discs. Call 866-999-2965 or go to ptv.org. You could also send your request by mail right to P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. One more time, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins. Join us again Wednesday for part two of this message called Straight Talk About Your Sex Life, right here on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.